Every theatre has its stories. There are the ones enjoyed by audiences every night, the ones applauded and reviewed, the ones recommended to friends. Then, there's always the ones talked about behind closed doors, the ones in which the theatre itself becomes a character, often tragic. My name is Hugh Hick. In this series, we're sitting out in search of those stories, in four of Dublin's oldest theatres. This is Behind the Curtain. As soon as you enter Smock Alley Theatre, you come face to face with its history. Three sides of the stage surrounded by the audience, with the fourth dominated by a large brick wall that marks the building's original foundations. It's officially Ireland's oldest theatre, so you don't have to look too hard to discover a past littered with interesting stories. But one of its most resonant is also one of its oldest. It's a story of sexual harassment. It's a story of a rich white man taking advantage of an actress. And it's a story of privilege gone crazy. Stop me if you've heard this one before. But this story, it ends a little differently to how you might expect. Today, we go behind the curtain of Smock Alley Theatre. My name is Connor Byrne and I'm the events manager here at Smock Alley Theatre. Connor Byrne is showing us around Smock Alley Theatre. The day we're there, a new show is loading into the main theatre space, but during a break we managed to slip in to look around. Although Smock Alley is technically Ireland's oldest theatre, it's not its longest running, having only officially reopened to the public in 2012. That's when Connor came on board. It's difficult to look at the theatre today and picture what it must have been like back in the day, but dealing with that history presents its own challenges, as Connor and the team found out. One of the major delays that we had was when we came into this space, which is the original theatre, we thought we'd come in, it was just an empty hole in the ground effectively, and we'd put a theatre back into it. But artefacts were found in the floor. It was a dirt floor. It would have been a dirt floor in the theatre, so it was effectively the same original floor. And loads of different artefacts started to be dug up, which obviously meant archaeologists had to come in, there had to be grids put down, excavations, all those sorts of things. So it really had a knock-on effect in relation to time and then budget. So that really kind of delayed things. Also, the plan was to put the theatre back in its original layout and original format. So the stage would have been on this end of the room, and obviously people can't see it, but the stage would have been in a different position as it is now. But with modern rigging and things like that, it was decided it was much easier to put the stage on the floor, and we'd have seating on all three sides, which is a throwback to the original layout, which would have been kind of horseshoe shaped. So it would have been kind of curved balconies of seats facing onto a stage. So how many levels would there have been in the original theatre then? It would have had three levels of balconies and then a series of seats on the floor, which was known as the pit. So it was very much segregated by class. First level balconies would have been the most expensive seats, would have been very well to do people, lords and ladies, things like that would have had balconies, normally season tickets. The balcony above would have been, for want of a better word, working class, um, people who had you know, doctors, lawyers, tradesmen. They would have been a similar price to the floor, uh, seats that are on the pit. And then the cheapest seats would actually go through the, the ceiling that's here now, but they would have been the floor above and they would have been reserved for the poorest people and the servants of the people in the first-class seats. The history of Smock Alley Theatre begins in 1662. The same year Francis Drake died, the Dodo went extinct, and diarist Samuel Pepys gave the first account of a new show that was all the rage featuring two puppets called Punch and Judy. While that show might still be going strong after hundreds of years, the same can't be said of some of Smock Alley's early plays. 
it was entertainment and it was entertainment that people hadn't had for a long time so they were kind of desperate for it they wanted to see you know farce drama comedy romance all all these sorts of elements that are you know part and parcel of daily life but they wanted to see it performed for them on stage oftentimes the show might only run for two three nights if that might might only be in a once off so there's a huge amount of work being produced it's not common that you would see what's called restoration theater staged now because there was such a massive volume of it that people don't really get it because it was just churned out um you know these sort of ridiculous love stories were churned out for people just kind of lap up in the same way there's a lot of trash novels out at the moment <laughs> it's this it would have been the same for theater it was just this huge glut of entertainment trying to get out there to to draw on audiences at this point, we have to introduce a character who's very important to our story, Thomas Sheridan. Today, he's probably best known as the father of the infinitely better-known playwright, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, but he holds a unique place in the history of Smock Alley as well, and in Irish theatre history. He's the young prodigal upstart who, in 1776, is handed the keys to the building at the age of 26 and loudly declares he's going to change everything. He had been working, I believe, in theatres in London. He also worked as a playwright. He was an actor and he became involved in the theatre here and he decided to take it over and start to manage it. And he really saw that the fortunes of the theatre had started to slide in the previous years before he took it over. And his theory was that if he kind of revived the fortunes of the entire neighbourhood, it would pick up business in the theatre itself. So he worked very hard to actually clean up the entire area. So the the street that's actually behind us is now, it's Essex Street West, but that street was originally called Smock Alley and that's where the, the name of the theatre comes from. And the reason it's called Smock Alley is because there were a lot of brothels on the street and a smock is a lady's undergarment, like a slip. The prostitutes in these areas would often hang out the windows and you'd see a lady's smock hanging out the window. So he worked to kind of clean up the businesses in the neighbourhood to bring in more reputable businesses and he believed that would bring more reputable footfall into the area which would bring more reputable people into the theatre. He also changed a number of rules in relation to the audience. Up until he came along male members of the audience were allowed to pay a little extra on top of their ticket which allowed them to go backstage to see what sort of actresses were back there. So he actually he changed the, the rules for that. He, um, it, was, it was no longer uh, a privilege that men had that they could wander anywhere they wanted in the building. That last privilege that Connor mentioned was known as freedom of the scenes. And the story of why Thomas Sheridan cancelled it is itself worthy of the stage. The whole incident is perhaps best known today as the Kelly Riots. There was a sort of understanding that if you had a certain status, you could go backstage and talk to the actors. And it went to the way in which the theatre was a place in which you displayed status. This is Christopher Morash. He wrote the book on Irish theatre history. Literally. I've got a copy. It's called A History of Irish Theatre, 1601-2000. to On page one, he writes, A history of Irish theatre is a history of Irish audiences. Who they were how much they paid for their tickets, where they sat, whether they watched reverentially or threw oranges at the orchestra. Later on, he talks about the Kelly Riots. Because the Kelly Riots are an important moment in the history of Irish audiences. Which is why, a few days later, we're sitting in the Vice Provost's office in Trinity College, Dublin, to ask Christopher to tell us the whole story. Well, there's a production play called Aesop, and Sheridan was on stage in full costume and there was there was a man in the audience named Kelly Edmund Kelly and Kelly actually the family originally came from Galway 
And Kelly was heckling, basically. At that time, actors could interact with the audience in a way, you know, even just to kind of stare down a heckler or to kind of, you know, to kind of engage with them in some ways. And eventually Kelly, who's, who's drunk, he was very, very drunk, Kelly eventually went backstage. And there was an actress there, Miss Dyer, who was married to another actor in the company. And the reports afterwards said that he offered to do to her what her husband had done to her using the obscene expression. So it was uh, basically, he, he sexually harassed her. Sheridan came backstage, he was off, off stage from his role, basically chased Kelly out from backstage and his costume included this big stick. So he used the stick to drive Kelly out from backstage. Now interestingly enough, the philosopher Edmund Burke also happened to be backstage at the time. Um, he, was, he was in Trinity at the time as well. So you've got Edmund Burke backstage, you've got Sheridan dressed up as Aesop, and you have this drunken man who's sexually harassing an actress. So Sheridan chases, her, chases Kelly out from backstage. Kelly reappears in the pit and starts again heckling and abusing Sheridan from the pit. And Sheridan steps out of role, steps out of character and turns to him and says, Sir, I'm as good a gentleman as you are. And that was the kind of the key thing. And that's what the crux of the story came down to. What did it mean to be a gentleman? Not even, is it okay to go backstage and molest an actress? But who gets to call themselves a gentleman? Edmund Kelly came from money. He went to Trinity College. Thomas Sheridan had also gone to Trinity College, but he was an actor, and actors weren't gentlemen. The next few nights, Kelly and his friends came back and started heckling Sheridan on stage. Before long, this had exploded into full citywide riots. And so that whole area in what's now Temple Bar and around Dame Street um, it becomes a series of really almost like kind of like gang wars or faction wars. So the students in Trinity by and large lined up with Sheridan. Um, a lot of the kind of gentlemen who would have been kind of young men around town lined up with Kelly. Um, they were fighting in College Green. There was like, and people carried swords in these days. So it was, this is serious business. And finally, the people who backed Sheridan got the upper hand, and Kelly kneeled here right in Front Square. You know, we're doing this interview here in Trinity College, literally 100 feet from where we're sitting, right outside the window. Kelly kneeled and basically submitted to Sheridan. And that was the end of that. But it was really, it was, it was a real turning point because it showed you that the theater was a place where you could define social status in a society that didn't have a lot of ways to do that. But there was more to this than simple humiliation for Kelly. Alongside the riots, the two men had ended up in court suing each other. Sheridan won, by some accounts wooing the jury by countering Kelly's counsel's assertion that he had never seen a gentleman player, by standing up, bowing modestly, and saying, Sir, I hope you see one now. Kelly was fined 500 pounds and imprisoned for a month. So what did all this mean for Smock Alley? Christopher Morash says that Sheridan was always a reformer, and this whole episode gave him the excuse he needed to change the way his audiences were received in the theatre. The freedom of the scenes was gone for a start, that was a given, but it didn't end there. He was coming around to the view that the theatre was a kind of model or a microcosm of civic society, and that the theatre only worked because actors and audiences showed one another mutual respect. In the same way that civic society only worked, if the people who were doing the governing and the people who were governed showed one another mutual respect. 
So for Sheridan, it was if you want to see how a state should work, look at a well-run theater. So that didn't include things like sitting on the stage, waving to your friends from the stage while somebody's trying to act, talking during the performance, all that sort of thing. So he banned people from sitting on the stage, which was deeply unpopular because the people who sat on the stage were by and large the gentlemen of Kelly's ilk, you know, that you didn't sit on the stage to get a better view of the play, you sat on the stage so that everybody else had a better view of you. I have to admit, I have mixed feelings about this story. We first came across it in an article written by Fintan O'Toole late last year, in which he referenced it in relation to the Me Too movement. And that's what I wanted it to be, a secret Me Too story buried in the annals of theatre history. But history is rarely that satisfying. If it was, it'd be a story about the actress, Helena Dyer, reclaiming her dignity as both an actress and a woman, and society showing a rare form of solidarity against lechery. But after listening to Christopher... I realised it wasn't that at all. This was another story of two men having an ego-driven sword fight about what it means to be a certain kind of man, and as happens in history over and over, use a woman to do it. After researching this story, we could find very little about Helena Dyer. Indeed, most sources simply refer to her as Mrs. Dyer, and there's very little information about what happened to her next. Before we left... I asked Christopher whether this incident at least improved things for actresses like Helena Dyer, in the way they were viewed and treated. The answer disappointed me. Not immediately. I mean, actors in the 18th century hold a very interestingly sort of ambiguous position. They are celebrities, you know, that you could buy, you know, prints of actresses and so on, and people put them up on their walls. It was something the Lord Lieutenant would like, you know, would like to have dinner with the leading actresses from the theatre. There was a kind of sense that they were somehow sexually available, which wasn't necessarily the case at all, but there was a sense that they, they were. For an actor like Sheridan to call himself a gentleman was contentious. It would be much more problematic, I would say, for an actress to have called herself a lady. Actresses were still struggling to achieve the kind of respect that they would achieve later, but there was always this sense that they were somehow on the edge of respectable society. Of course, there are many more stories behind Smock Alley's walls, as well as a theatre. From 1815 onwards, it was a church for a time and was home to Father Jack Flash, so-called for his ability to say a quick mass. The rumour was that the dockers would order a pint of Guinness, go in and have mass said and come back before the pint had actually settled. But we've got other theatres to visit and other stories to tell. Have you heard the one about the tragic death of a dancer from the Olympia Theatre and how she ties into the last woman sentenced to death in Ireland? Next time on Behind the Curtain. This episode was produced by Hugh Hick and Heather McLeod. Special thanks to Connor Byrne, Christopher Morash, and everybody at Smock Alley Theatre. Behind the Curtain is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.